0: Hi, folks, this is Jack Spirito with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As, is As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, come to you once again from Arlington, Texas with episode 405 today. It is Wednesday, March 24th, 2010, and we are going to do a show today on starting your plants from seeds. Now, maybe I should have done this show in January, because a lot of you, uh, for peppers and tomatoes and things like that, should be getting close, maybe another few weeks, to putting them out into the ground, and this isn't a great time for starting peppers or tomatoes. For a lot of the country, you might have to actually have to go out and buy some plants at this point. you can probably still get some plants started from seed and you're just going to be putting them out kind of in that second wave crop. But there's a lot of plants you can plant from seed right now. Uh, Let me tell you before we even get into today's show, what I put into uh, seed starting plots yesterday. I put in ground cherries, trombone zucchini, uh, calendula, California poppy, orach, comfrey, purslane, garden soil, parsley, and sweet basil plants. Uh, I started all the seeds yesterday. and um, So if I can do that, then obviously a lot of parts around the country, it's actually colder than it is here. Uh, you're still getting an even earlier start based on your climate. So there's a lot of time left for this and the reason I'm doing it is that I'm getting a lot of questions lately from people that are very frustrated either from their current efforts or from their past efforts to start seeds. And they're basically saying, I've got my garden going good. The soil seems great. When I buy plants and stick them in there, they grow. When I buy certain types of seeds, like maybe beans and corn, and I put them in there, they grow. But everything else that I try to start from seeds, I fail. And I don't know why I fail. And it's very frustrating because I I want to get to a self-sufficient state, and self-sufficiency is not running down to Calloway's Nursery or John's Nursery or whatever and buying plants. That's not self sufficiency to me. Help me figure out what the hell I'm doing wrong. This is hard because every individual has different individual problems that could be causing uh, what's going on. But I'm going to do my best today to give a kind of a general understanding of seed starting so that you can start your own seeds and avoid a lot of these problems so you don't have failures because failures are frustrating. You do all this work, you put the little seeds in the ground and you wait and maybe one little green stem comes up and they die or nothing happens or, and you're just not sure what went wrong. So... I'll do my best for you today, and if you follow my advice, I think that even if you don't get a Folks, sometimes I still have seed failures, right? But I think if you follow my advice today, and and, and I'm going to try to teach you why, not just how. And I teach you why that you can think for yourself and evolve your own needs. I think if you start doing that, you'll start getting more and more successes. But before we do that, let's go ahead and take care of today's housekeeping. Housekeeping item one is taking care of our sponsors. As always, they do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one, the Lifesaver 4000 water filter. That comes from Ready-Made Resources. I want you to check this product out. It was designed by its inventor after witnessing... Uh, the tragedies of the tsunami and realizing how important clean water was. Uh, it can filter down, filter down to 0.015 microns, which is smaller than all bacteria and viruses known to man, which means it can make just about any water safe to drink. Next up today is Common Sense Prep. Again, they're kind of our relatively new sponsor, and uh, they're really cool. I like what they're doing. Uh, They're bringing original products and stuff. And I wanted to tell you, I got my, I can't even remember what the model number is now. It doesn't have its name, but it's from Tool Logic, my little knife that I talked about from them. I'll be doing a review of that. And what this is, it's a little side lock uh, pocket knife with a belt clip. Fits in your pocket. But it's also got a whistle on it. Um, this built into it. I didn't even realize that, but it's got a feral, uh fire strike rod <clears throat> built into the handle, and it's pretty cool. <clears throat> they also come with little lights built into the handle. I like this tool. I'll do a review for you. It's just one example of the great stuff that Common Sense Prep is bringing to the table as a sponsor, uh, with, instead of just overlapping with the same things that all the rest of our sponsors have. They've also just done something very cool for our audience, but I'm going to hold off on that until I talk about the members' brigade briefly today. Uh, Next up today, though, I do want you to remember to check out our gear shop. Uh, I've been working with Sis Wolf, uh, who runs the gear shop for us with her husband, TW, and John Willis of SOE Tactical Gear for a while now. on coming out with an SOE-built product, branded to TSP. We're getting very close to that. I think we'll have them in the shop for pre-orders soon. Uh, initially, we're only going to have, I think, like 25 in the, in the in the store and um, for pre-order, and they may sell before we get in. So when this product comes in, you want to really look at it. What it is is it's SOE's kind of gear bag. Their general purpose gear bag. I think we're going to sell it for around $49. bucks. we are going to sell it as cheap as we can and still make a profit because we want to get these things out there. Very, very well-built bag with a, a, a survival podcast patch on it but instead of the typical patch, it's the blue and the black and the colors. This is like a subdued patch. It looks like something that, and SIS did a great job with the color scheme. It looks like something that if you were going to go in the military and work desert fatigues, a subdued patch for that. Really cool, really neat. So check out the gear shop and be looking out for that product. Last but not least, consider joining the Members Brigade. Exclusive content, free videos, lots of discounts, everything. I'm saving this all. Yeah, that's... It is what it is. You guys should know by now that you're supporting the show and getting good stuff out of it. But the other thing that you're going to get, and it's brand new, I wanted to announce today, is that Common Sense Prep uh, is a reseller of Paladin Press books. And they're giving 15% off of, uh, of all books from uh, Paladin Press on their site, uh, The discount codes in your members' brigade. Real quick, before I get into the main topic, I just wanted to read a few titles of some of these books because I think this is a benefit that people might overlook, uh, but it's actually pretty cool. Okay, so I'm on their site, <coughs> on their uh, books part, and here's a couple of their survival and self-reliance-y uh, uh, t- titles. Tough Time Survival Guide Volume 1, Tough Time Survival Guide Volume 2, you can buy them in a set. Uh, Makeshift Workshops for Survival and Self-Reliance. Uh, Long-Term Survival in the Coming Dark Age. Uh, survival, shoestring Survivalism. Um, do-it-yourself Medicine. Ditch Medicine. United States Army Special Forces Medical Handbook. Let me get to another page. Uh, On their um, Retreat and Homestead books, The Survival Retreat, uh, Rangers Urban Survival, Starting a New Life in Rural America, Home Security, Building a Log Cabin Retreat, The Safe House. These are just a few titles. There's a ton of these books. in their Hunting and Trapping books, Survival Poaching. I might have to, to buy that one just to read it. Intro to the Primitive Advanced Trapping Techniques, The Trapper's Bible, uh, and a trapper's Bible looks really cool. I may pick that one up myself. Just a few more and I'll go on to the main topic today. In the foraging, I've got survival and self-reliance uh, foraging, the art and science of dumpster diving, the wild free cookbook, uh, eating cheap. And uh, there's just a ton of really cool... Uh, Books and so there's some DVDs as well, and you don't get 15% off of everything at Common Sense Prep, just the books and DVDs. So check that out, and let's get on to the main topic of today's show, which again is going to be starting those seeds. I just thought it was cool to back up and take a minute and look at what this discount code actually provided you, because I think a lot of people buy like, books or so whatever books. Pretty cool stuff there, and not the typical stuff that you see, you know, on Amazon or whatnot. All right. So let's start out with with seed starting and let's look at a fundamental. I want you to understand the why behind all of the how that I'll give you as a follow-up. What we have to do is we have to sit back and we have to say to ourselves, self, why is it so hard for us to take a tiny little seed that we give such great care and attention to and provide such a perfect environment for and get that thing to grow when seeds grow in the wild all the time anyway? And I think it's because a lot of people are accustomed to taking their seeds, going outside with them, making a nice patch of earth, putting the seed into the earth, and letting it be and waiting for it to grow. There's a problem here. Usually people are not mulching ground that they're planting seeds directly into. And that's not always a bad thing. Let's face it, if we're planting something like a lettuce seed directly into the ground and we put a heavy mulch on it, that little seedling is probably going to have a hard time forcing its way up through the mulch. There's some techniques to to get around that between maybe spreading mulch just wide enough for the seed line or mulching with something that's a little softer in that area, but there is that issue, and some seeds are just better off starting in a pot, which is what we're going to be talking about a lot today. Lettuce, to me, is one of them because it is such a fragile little seed. But we have this earth that we've prepared that's beautiful. If we break into it, it's this beautiful black, crumbly soil that we've worked so hard to create, either by mixing it into a raised bed or working stuff into our soil. But here's what we fail to realize. Go out to your soil after it hasn't rained for a day or two, and the sun's beat down on it, and and the top of it will have a crust. That crust has two problems. One is it's very, very strong. It's it's tougher than most mulches, actually. For when you're a tiny seedling trying to push your little seed head up through there, it's a crust, and it's something that's impenetrable in many instances. Also is its thickness. It's generally about a quarter inch thick, and sometimes it can go down even deeper than that. So if we're planting seeds that are a quarter inch thick, uh, Deep plant seeds, like lettuce seeds. Again, small seeds that have to go very near the surface. These are the ones that give people the most trouble. When we're planting that, right, and we have that crust, that means the seed is then encapsulated in the crust. And what does that mean? It means it's in a dry environment. That's one of the main reasons that direct sow seeds fail. They're planted shallow because they need to be, but they're not kept moist. And if you were to go out there and water them really gently two to three times a day, keep that surface moist so that it doesn't crust over, or use some sort of a light mulch to keep it from crusting over, those seeds would tend to come up for us a lot better. That's one major thing right there. But the reason I started with that is so we can look at nature. And what is nature for a seed like? First thing I want you to realize, if you go anywhere in the world where people are not, there's no people, It's almost inevitable that when you look down at the ground, you don't see dirt. You see leaves, you see refuse, you see grass, you see other plants growing, uh, you see sticks, you see debris, you see either something alive creating a living mulch environment, or you see something dead creating a dead mulch environment and being broken down into soil. So, if we go to, let's say we just go out to the middle of a great big meadow with a woodlot. We walk through the meadow, we have all these even in wintertime, there's certain plants that are able to grow, right? And even in wintertime when most of the plants are dead, they don't they don't drive and blow away, they they fall over, they lay down, they begin to break down. There's no dirt to be seen. And there's a little bit of dirt there is, there's little patches of it, and those are places that seeds can catch. And eventually that seed catches in late fall or winter. Uh, when it's too cold to germinate, and it catches in those little spots of dirt, and other things fall on top of it, creating a natural mulch. A lot of times, the mulch is not even flat to the ground. It's not heavy wood mulch like we might put into our gardens. It's really leafy, fluffy mulch, and some of it gets down and breaks down, but some of it just kind of makes like a little tent over top of the seedling. And if it's a seedling that falls near the edge of the forest, it's probably covered up, with beech leaves and oak leaves and hickory leaves and maybe a little bit of pine needle and everything that falls down out of the trees is creating this very loose mulch environment for it. And then it goes through winter. And throughout winter, the temperatures are too cold. And there's an innate intelligence in a seed that says, seed, it's too cold. Don't grow yet. All right. So one of the reasons that you might have problems with your seeds growing is they might be too cold. There's also another innate intelligence. Let's say that a seed doesn't germinate for some reason. It's held in a dry spot. It gets caught in a little leaf, and it gets in this little capsule. And eventually, an animal walks on it crashes it down into the soil. This is a natural process. It happens every day. And that seed hits fertile soil. But it hits fertile soil in July. And it's 100 degrees out. And the ground stays warm until just before the sun comes up again and gets warmed again. And it's way too hot. Well, that little seed's innate intelligence says, see, don't grow. It's too hot for you. If you pop your little, you know, fresh head up right now above the leaf litter, the sun will scald you and kill you. Or maybe it's too dry. And seeds wait in the wild for the perfect set of circumstances to arise. For many seeds that we like to grow in our gardens, that's at least... 14 consecutive days of temperatures of 75 degrees. Without it going much colder and without it getting much warmer. That perfect spring weather. You know that weather that comes that we're so close to right now? Where you just go, God, why can't it be like this all year? That's what the seed's waiting for. So when that perfect set of moisture and temperatures comes together, the seed gets ready to germinate. Well, the other thing that's happening is the light's coming down from the sun. Now, is it beating on that seedling? Is it beating on the earth? No, it's filtering through the leaf litter and debris. That seed may not even be under the ground. It might. Some seeds actually need a little bit of light to actually touch them. If they're completely dark, they won't germinate. Some will, some won't. But that filtered sunlight comes down there, and that little seedling starts to tap into its energy reserves, it starts to send out its first little tap roots down into the soil, and it starts to spring up with its first little life and grow up, seeking light. And the first see- thing you're going to see are a couple leaves that come off. I can't remember the scientific name for them, but the, I call them false leaves because they don't look like any other leaves that this plant's going to grow for the rest of its life. Their job is simply to get up there and catch the initial sunlight and start to send some energy through photosynthesis down into the root system So the plant can start to grow and expand beyond the little tiny energy reserve that's in the seed. That seed only has a little bit of energy. It needs to almost immediately kick over to solar power. So those leaves come up, but are they out there baking in the sun? No. They're down inside. Maybe maybe they're not even mulched, so to speak, but there's taller plants or even dead taller stalks around them creating mottled shade, perfect little environment, filtered sunlight for that seed to grow. And as that seed gets taller and taller, it starts getting exposed to more and more light. And as it gets exposed to more and more light, it's putting down deeper roots. So as it's getting a little bit more heated up by the sun, it's getting more ability to cool itself and nurture itself and and water itself all at the same time because the, the growth between the root system and the top of the plant are proportional to each other. And they're expanding at the same rate of speed eventually when it breaks its canopy, right, and we think of canopies as being a tree, but if we're in a meadow, and all of the the stuff in, in early spring is about six inches deep, well, then the canopy is seven inches. Once that plant hits seven inches, it's got full solar exposure. But it's ready. It's come up through this gentle, nurturing process, right? It's a perfect system. You know why it's perfect? Nature created it. Then we take that seed and say, well, if that seed survived all by its own in this harsh environment that we see as harsh as we don't understand it, and we go plant it in crusty soil, and it doesn't grow, and we don't understand why. Well, there's the why. That's the biggest thing that you need to understand. Now, we know what we need to create, and we can define the needs of a seed. The needs of a seed are actually pretty simple. They involve temperature, light, and moisture okay, and, and fertile soil to grow in, a fertile medium to grow in. It doesn't even really have to be soil because we know we can grow seeds in gravel in an aquaponic system where the nutrients are carried by the water from the fish with the fish waste and everything else that goes in with that, right? So we need, we need light, temperature, uh, a fertile environment, and, if, and and moisture. And if we have those in the right proportions, our seeds will grow, So we have to start out with where we're going to start our seeds. And I'm actually, with a few exceptions, not a big fan of starting your seeds in your garden. I think that unless you're doing a permaculture system in a highly evolved state where you have lots of leaf litter and you've actually recreated the food forest edges and all this other stuff. and You've got natural mulch everywhere. You're not running off to the store buying big, bulky, heavy mulches. You're using shredded leaves and things like that. And everything is what it is. And you're planting so much that you let four or five plants go to seed and 5,000 seeds go to the ground. And you only need 20 to grow next year. And you're actually culling. You can get reseeding going on and things like that. I think that most of your seeds, when you're doing Conventional gardening, uh, typical beds and, and things like that should be started indoors with some exceptions we'll talk about in a bit. Why start them indoors though? Is it just so we can get a jump start on the year? No, it's because we need one of our main fundamentals to be right. And the biggest one that gets blown for people other than seeds that are planted shallow with the moisture issue that I talk about with the crust forming, the number one is te- number one one is temperature. It gets too hot or too cold. Most seeds do very well with germination in temperatures between 70 and 80 degrees. Well, it just so happens that human beings like to keep their homes between 70 and 80 degrees. Make sense? So if we bring them into this environment indoors, then we create a perfect temperature range for our seeds to germinate. There are seeds that are difficult to germinate. I'm working with Goji Berry, also known as uh, uh, Wolfberry, this year. We'll start from seeds and create a bunch of plants to plant up in Arkansas when we finally move. Well, they really need to be held almost perfectly at 75 degrees, and they can take up to 21 days to germinate. More specific control than most seeds you'll ever plant need, actually. So, what am I going to do? I'm bringing my little Huffabator in next week, my incubator for eggs. I'm going to set it to 75 degrees moisture-controlled, temperature-controlled environment, and I'm going to put those suckers in there with a little bit of light shining in, and as soon as I see them sprout, they'll come out of there and go under the grow lights. But until they just start to, to germinate, they'll stay in there. So temperature control is a big reason to bring your seeds indoors. I'll tell you a quick story about a friend of mine. He went online and found out the easiest plants to grow. And he found things like beets and tomatoes and you know peppers and things like that. And he looked for the easiest ones to grow from seed. And beets were one of the things that came up. So last year he gets his garden all ready to go, throws some beet seeds in the ground, and waits. And he waits. And he waits. Finally, he calls me and he says, "Hey, I thought beets were easy to grow." I said, "They're simple to grow." He said, "Well, I can't get mine to grow." I said, are you trying to grow them now? He says, yeah, right now. I said, when did you plant them? He said, about three weeks ago. Well, it was August. The soil temperature in Texas in August is probably over 90 degrees. Beets won't germinate when the temperature's that hot. So beets are one of the ones I'm not big on starting in pots. There's a lot of issues if you try to start beets in pots. And you could grow, you can get a nice container Right, Good sized container where they can stay for their entire life. Plant 10 beets in that pot. Bring that pot indoors and keep it all perfect until they germinate. As soon as you start to germinate, bring them outside, give them a little model shade, get them going from there if you want to, especially if you just want them for greens. But I tell you, germinate your beets in March or in te- in Texas or in like September, uh, even toward the end of September when the soil is not so daggone hot, and they'll grow just fine for you. But other plants, carrots are another. Carrots are tough because they grow that long taproot. Anything with a long taproot is tough to start in a pot.
1: And it's a lot of work
0: to you know, start you know 100 carrot seeds or whatever in pots. So you kind of just overseed those and try to plant them at the right time of year. But everything else, if you plant it indoors, you can get that kind of perfect environment set up for them. The other thing that you need, though, besides temperature, is lighting. Lighting is the most crucially overlooked thing that people do with their seedlings. What they do is they find a sunny window, at least the window they think is sunny. They stick their plants in there and they wait for magic to happen. Well, what people don't generally realize is what you see as a sunny window, the plant sees as an awful lot of shade. And generally what the plant gets out of that is very intense sunlight for a couple hours and very little sunlight for the rest of the day. When what it's looking for is low-intensity sunlight throughout the duration of the day. Think about that little seedling in the middle of the meadow coming up, growing through all the other competing plants and dead plants. It's got that mottled sunlight coming down there all day long, warming it and nurturing it. You don't get that out of a window. You either have a south-facing window with the sun beating on it, heating it up too hot, too intense all day long and you know you can make that work honestly if you pull back a little bit on your ledge and you know if you're growing the right seedlings it can take a little bit more direct temperatures uh direct sunlight but a lot of times it's too much even even for some of the common garden crops in that environment <clears throat> the other side of it is usually and this is more often it's not enough light and what happens is you see your little seedlings come up and you get so excited little green poking through And then all of a sudden, you come back the next day, and your plant is growing an inch in a day. And you're excited. That's bad. And you notice down toward the base of your plant that your stalks are white, not green. And the seedlings look just a little bit not right. They look a little bit stringy. And the next day, they're an inch and a half long, and they're falling over. And they're skinny, and they're unhealthy. What's going on here? They're not getting enough light. That's always the problem when you see that. What they're doing is, is is think about the meadow. As they grow up, they get more light. They're hardwired this way. If you need more light, grow faster. Spend your reserves. It's worth it. The light will be there. When you get to the light, then you can recharge yourself and keep growing. And they will kill themselves this way in a quest for the light. If we put seedlings in a dark room, seedlings that will germinate without light, and we grow them, we'll get white seedlings that will grow and grow and grow, fall over, keep growing until they, just, until they expend every bit of energy in the seed reserve, and then they'll die. So that's the other reason. So you need a grow light system. And I don't care if you buy one, I don't care if you make one. I just did a great YouTube video I mentioned yesterday. Um, I've got my little grow light system. I just told you all the plants that are in it. I figured I have 68 plants in it. There's still room for more. Uh, it's in a sterilite bin. A forty-one quart sterilite bin with three Walmart um, uh, lights that cost nine dollars a piece. So all in all, I've got about forty bucks into my little system here versus going out and buying one for several hundred dollars. So you can you can be as creative with that as you want. I'll put links to all my uh, new videos about seed starting on YouTube in today's. uh, Uh, podcast notes and folks I didn't really even like do the videos for the podcast I did the videos to do videos and then these questions started pouring in on top of it I thought what a coincidence maybe it's time to do this show but with that light system you start to take things on anew because and, and here's the thing you don't need a huge light system as long as you're getting into the time of year like now where your plants can spend some time outside because here's what you can do you put your plants under the light system yes You give them the perfect moisture environment, the perfect soil, the perfect lighting. Everything is perfect. You get them started. Once they get their first set of true leaves, so they get the first two false leaves and then the first two true leaves come out, you take them out of that perfect environment and you put them into a different bin or tray. You take them outside, at least during the day, as long as it's warm enough at this point of the year. And for most people, even in the northern climates, it is during the day. You put them somewhere where they get diffused sunlight naturally. So a lot of your trees are just starting to get leaves back on them now. That's a perfect sunlight diffuser. It's not a full tree, it's not full shade. So you take them under the trees, and you allow the light to filter through the leaves. And at night, if it's going to be cold... You go out and get them and bring them in. But since it's nighttime, they don't need to be under your grow light anymore. So now your grow light is free to start a new batch of seeds. You see how simple that works. You're using nature, but you're putting the hand of man behind it so that you can constantly move things around. So basically what we're doing is since we didn't create the perfect environment for the seed to just be on its own, We're moving it now because it's portable in a pot to wherever the most ideal conditions for it are at any given time of day. And this doesn't have to be a lot of work because a couple of these 41-quart sterilite bins, and these are the big, long, shallow ones, and you could have, you know, let's say 70 plants in one of them, and if you had two of those, that's a lot of plants for anybody with a home garden to ever think about planting. 70 plants is huge. So it's only basically moving two bins and maybe moving them only twice a day little piece of advice that's in one of my videos, if you're using like a Sterilite bin or something like that that can fill up with water, you're watering from the bottom, that's great. But somewhere about an inch from the bottom, drill a hole in the side, a fairly large hole, a drain hole. So if you have them outside and you're at work and it rains, it doesn't drown your plants. It allows the water to drain off. Okay? Makes sense. So there's so much flexibility by having the plants in a pot and in a tray. That generally, I like to keep them there until I know that the environment is going to be stable for them going forward. So what just happened in Texas, we got like a week of the most beautiful weather you've ever seen. Seventy degrees, sunny, birds are singing, and trees are blossoming, and, and, and putting leaves on, and everything is beautiful. And Home Depot and Lowe's and every garden center within Dallas-Fort Worth turned into freaking uh, Six Flags Over Texas. This is what the parking lots look like. There were lines to get in the park. People were buying vegetables and plants and just going nuts. And then what happened this weekend? It snowed. And it snowed a lot. It snowed a bunch. Um, how much snow? Uh, I got like a half inch. That's enough to kill tomatoes and peppers, though, guys. All you need is a, is a freeze, not just snow on top of it. it makes it worse. But up around Plano and, and areas north of there, those guys got like six to eight inches of snow. And it didn't last long. It went away. But it, all these people that put in all these plants, if they didn't take very uh, intense measures to protect them, lost them. Now, what I did is I had to put the peppers and tomatoes I wanted to get kind of going early in a really big pots. So maybe I'll video those for you this week, too. And all I did was go out. Yeah, they were heavy, but we put them in the wheelbarrow, set six big pots on our floor in our kitchen for two days, and then put them back outside. They're doing great. Uh, but I didn't have any of the tender plants in the ground yet. They're all still in either big pots or they're in small pots waiting to be planted into the ground. There's so much flexibility, and there's no reason that you can't keep a plant growing just as fast, if not faster, in the proper size pot than if it were in the ground itself. So why jump the gun and plant it into the ground early? So make sure that, you know, barring some free kids like last year... We got a frost in uh, in early May, which never happens in Texas. I got burned on that one. And, and sometimes that's gonna happen to you. But if you wait until you're past your average last frost date, uh, you're probably especially two weeks past it, you're probably out of the woods. So holding off is another good reason for starting your plants indoors and have them off to a great start before they go into the ground. The next thing we have to talk about is remember our other requirement was water, right? We've got light temperature, moisture, and a fertile growing environment. Those are our four needs. So water, I love growing in trays when I'm starting my plants because I don't have to water the tops of my seed uh, pots at all. All I do is I keep about a quarter inch deep water in the bottom of the pot, uh, the tray. I even let that dry completely out and then I watch the, the pots. And generally about a day after the water in the bottom of the tray runs out, They start to dry out just a little bit, and I let them dry out a little bit. But as soon as that top starts to get even remotely a little bit crusty, I go and I add another quarter to a half inch of water to the bottom, and the wicking action pulls up and waters from the bottom, and that's very gentle. But there's another thing that you might have to do. Sometimes the tops, because you wait a little bit too long, start to dry out a little bit, and you can't. Um, sometimes you won't, from the bottom watering, get the tops moist enough. So what you need is a little spray bottle, a little mister bottle, that's nice and gentle, put it on a nice gentle mist, and mist the tops of all your seeds, uh, especially before they've ever germinated. Because what can happen, if you come in there with a, even what looks like a gentle watering can, you actually water your seeds right out of the soil. You either push them out, and they end up falling over and into the bottom of the bin, and you never know it, and they die. Or you actually can sometimes drive them too deep in the soil if there are seeds that need to be planted very, very shallow. So these are all the things that go wrong and how to think about them so that you can uh, get out of the problem. Next, of course, is temperature and creating constant temperature environments. Sometimes that, you know, your house is 70 degrees. Well, the seed would like it 75 degrees. really would. It would be much happier, germinate much better, grow much faster. But 5 degrees is not that much. We'll try this, though. That windowsill that you keep your seeds in uh, with your grow light system, what's the temperature of that windowsill? If it's 30 degrees outside, that windowsill might be 60 degrees. If you put a thermometer right on the flat surface of it where your plant light is sitting, it might be 50 degrees. It might be 55 degrees, just the surface temperature, even though the air temperature all around is. And that cold is acting like a heat sink and pulling the heat right out of your pots. And since they're wet when you pull heat out of something that's wet, you get chilling action, right? So what happens is people put their seeds in a window, the house is 70 degrees, 72 degrees, and they think everything's wonderful, and the seeds don't do well or don't even grow at all or take a real long time to germinate, and if you put a thermometer into the soil, even with the lights overhead, you'll find the soil temperature down in the 50s. Well, if you look at a lot of germination charts, a lot of seeds that will germinate when the temperatures are 50 degrees will germinate, but they might take two months. And sometimes in moist soil at 50 degrees for two months, which is too long to wait anyway, the seed will rot before it ever germinates. So we have to keep the temperatures constant. So what do we do? Well, one, the lights help some. Remember, we turn the lights off at night. And seeds need a light cycle. You can't just leave the lights on 24-7. That's not good. It's not healthy. It confuses them as to what time. Remember, they get their time the way that, that, that our internal compasses and our internal clocks do, by sunlight duration. They know it's winter because there's only a few hours of sunlight. They know it's spring because there's equal amounts. They know it's summer because there's more sunlight than, than darkness. And they know it's getting to fall. And they, they time their activities based on this. So we screw that up for them. They don't know what to do. So we need to be running about 10 hours of light on our seeds a day when we're getting them started. And we need to be shutting it off. So at night we shut the lights off. Now there's no heat. Now it gets colder outside. Now that windowsill might go down, believe it or not, into the low 50s or high 40s. And if you doubt this, go to a windowsill in your home when, it, when it's cold outside, folks. And stand there and feel how warm it seems. And then put your hand on that windowsill and see what the difference is. And remember, it's not just the temperature of the windowsill. It's that windowsill acting as a heat sink, drawing the heat out of your pots, and the chilling action that happens to your soil is moisture is evaporating and heat is being drawn at the same time. You're turning your pots into refrigerators. So what do we do about this? We either, A, locate our, since we have grow lights, we don't need to be in a window. Right? Or if we're going to be in a window to get some natural sunlight, because maybe it's just, oh, that's where I have mine. Why do I have them there? It's a convenient location. So what do we do? We put some heating pads underneath the sea uh, the trays. And I'll tell you what I've been using, and they've worked great for me. They're kind of expensive, but I had them anyway, and I can tell you they work great. I have kept uh, snakes and reptiles for a long time. I've cold my collection down. I have a lot of little thermal heat pads that go underneath the tray uh, to keep reptiles in, and I put two, with a big tray, maybe three of these small heaters under there, and I try to locate them not just under the tray, but right underneath the plants. Well, that creates this heat barrier. It doesn't necessarily really warm up the, the, the soil so much, but it prevents that heat-seek action, and it does provide a little bit of warmth. And with them and the lights on during the day, we get a nice, wonderful soil temperature in the 70s, as long as the house is in the 70s. And at night, it drops down into, like, the, the mid-60s which is a perfect emulation of exactly what most seeds are waiting for to germinate so you get a very good result. So the closer we can get to holding most seeds between 70 and 80 constantly, the better we'll do, and 75 being about that perfect little measure in between. Um, but then let's look at, okay, we've done all this stuff, and our seeds are starting to come up. There's two techniques I want to talk to you about. Called, one's called culling, and the other one's called pricking out. Culling is the easy one, but most people screw it up and ruin their plants. What happens is you get this huge packet of seeds. You bought like an eighth of an ounce of lettuce seed. But when you look at it, you have like 10,000 seeds or something crazy, 5,000 seeds in this little tiny envelope because they're so small. And you think to yourself, well, self, if I put one seed in this thing, it might not grow. So I'll put two or three in every little pocket, and then I'll, you know, cull out down to the strongest seedling. So you do it. The problem is, what most people do is, three little seedlings come up and they weigh and they get maybe about an inch tall and they start to put those true leaves on and they go, okay, there's the winner. He's the strongest. And then they go in very carefully and gently and grab the other seedling or two and they pull them out. And when they do this, they don't realize that all those little roots have grown down there and intertangled with each other. And then when you're pulling the root, you can actually end up pulling out your strong seedling, or even if you think you have it, you damage its root system while it's still very, very tiny. That root system is just getting started. Uh, in another couple of weeks, you could cut half the roots off, and it won't even care. Okay? But right now, it's at this fragile state in its infancy. So just as a toddler can run around and bang themselves up and be fine, but an infant, if it got hit that way, could be killed, that's what we're doing with our seedlings. The seedlings. an infant now. So you never pull your coals out. Get yourself a little pair of snips or clippers or scissors and cut them off at the stalk so you don't disturb the soil. That is culling, and that's doing it the right way. And pulling them out is just not a good idea. Now, in spite of what I just so you might think, wow, man, you're disturbing those roots. Certain plants can be what's called pricked out. My grandfather, when he used to start peppers, instead of putting them all in these little pots and everything, what he would do is he'd just take a handful of pepper seeds in a tray, uh, probably about 10 inches by 10 inches long, fill it up, and he would just sprinkle them like salt and pepper in there, and then take some soil and just sprinkle some soil on top and and, and maybe cover them with about an inch of soil and and pack it down. And they would grow like this whole forest of peppers all side by side. And then he'd go in there with a little you know, little tool, usually like a pair of tweezers or something, and he would just kind of gently pull each little plant out and move them into their own pots. And he said it was easier than going through one seed at a time because he would start like, you know, 50 pepper plants. And that's called pricking out. You can do that. Uh, I did a video on it, on how to do it when they're a little past the time you do it. But what you want to do is this, this is done when the plants are very tiny and very fragile, and uh, you will lose some of them, but you can plant so many seeds so fast. And it really works well for peppers and tomatoes. And I haven't found that it works that well for much else. I actually don't generally do pricking out. Uh, what I will occasionally do is when I start my seeds in, let's say, a 10-cell uh, peat pot thing, like you, know, you buy from Lowe's or Home Depot, you, have to, you can start 10 plants in one and then they can be cut off and planted into the ground. I usually put two seeds in every cell, and this is what you'll see happen. Sometimes I will have a cell that doesn't grow. Neither seed germinates. And some cells will spot two, and two will grow very well. With a plant like a pepper, when I go into potting up, which is next in my explanation here, I'll separate them and see if I can get both growing. Generally, I can with peppers. And my little surgical operation that's on the video, it's been three days now, and all the peppers are doing well that have been potted up. So that is culling versus pricking out. Um, let's hold off on potting up. Let's go next to uh, seeds that are generally considered direct sow seeds. Every piece of literature I read about Swiss chard tells me to put Swiss chard directly into the ground. I have had, and I guess it's just timing and weather, and I used to plant Swiss chard in Pennsylvania, and I would throw it in the soil and it would just grow. As long as I kept the soil moist uh, until it got started and got that big long taproot going, it would grow. Starting switch chard here in Texas has been absolutely a nightmare for me. I can't start it at all. But if I put it in a peat pot, get it going, and throw it in the ground, it grows like nobody's business. So even though that's considered direct sow plant, I've, I've taken to the starting them in pots. And here's what I found out. By doing that... I've gotten better results than I ever did before, even when they started well in the ground. So some plants, that they tell you to start in the ground, actually do very well, started in pots and nurtured through that early stage. So there's a lot of things that I've learned to do that with. I now do that with uh, a lot of things I used to direct sow, and I'm just getting better results. Squashes and zucchinis. Uh, I have done much better results putting squashes into uh, seed starters, and getting them going, and getting them up to about, you know, a couple inches tall, and then putting them out. Uh, I've done it with just about everything. I did it this year with fava beans. Because we were having this crazy freeze, warm, freeze, warm, and I just wanted to get some fava beans started early and see if I could get them to fruit because they don't do well in the heat. So I wanted to see if I could get some beans. You know, I only had like ten of them, and only eight of them made it. So I just want to see if I could get a seed crop out of them. I don't even want to eat them this year. Um... So I did it with fava Beats. They're doing. I'll see if I can video those. It's going to be rainy and nasty today, but uh, maybe I can video them to you, for you tomorrow and uh, give you a look at what they're doing. Dynamite now. Uh, they're doing beautifully. So I want you to open your mind and realize that a lot of the stuff that it says in direct, so you can plant indoors, uh, get it going, and then move it outside. And I want you to think about moving things outside relatively quickly as long as your climate will handle it, and as long as you have a place with diffused sunlight like a newly sprouting tree or even a fairly shaded area, and just watch them. If, you, if your plants start to lose the deep greenness to them, they're not getting enough light, so move them to an area of slightly more light. And if they start to look like the light's hurting them, keep, when you first put them in some pretty deep sunlight, some pretty heavy light, keep an eye on them. If they start to look a little wilty, get them out of there. They're not ready yet. And that moves us to our next thing, which is called hardening off. Hardening off is often overlooked. It's one of the uh, most overlooked things that people do. And it's because nurseries have made us not need to do it anymore. When we go to our nurseries, we're generally buying plants that have been sitting on a shelf uh, under-diffused sunlight for a very long time. They've been exposed to the elements gradually over time. The nursery opens the doors a little bit wider. As the spring progresses, they start putting the trays out more in the direct sunlight because that's where people are walking in. And by the time we get them home, we can take most seedlings from the nursery, stick them in the ground, and they'll grow just fine. Not so much when we're growing our own if we keep them under grow lights. This is what happens. People buy a great, big, huge grow light system. The hell with these little ones. I'll spend the money. I'll do it right. And they have 100 plants going or 200 or 300 plants going at the same time. And they get them all up to a perfect seedling size to plant into the ground. They take them out of the light. They go out of the garden. They stick them in the ground and they die. And they just look at it and go, why? After all that, when you feel crushed when it happens... I did everything right the ground is good the plant is good it was healthy it was green it was growing beautifully why did it die? because you took the seedling that was slowly coming up through all that stuff we talked about in the beginning to canopy out and you took it from being completely under protection to completely unprotected all at one time hardening off is how we emulate that transition so what hardening off means is that we take our seeds, and we once we know they're doing pretty well, they've been outside, they've been in diffused sunlight, we move them out into direct sunlight, well watered, nice and moist, we let them have exposure to that direct sunlight on the first day for a couple, three hours, and we put them back into that sheltered environment. And the next day, we bring them out again. And then... Another thing is going on, maybe the first time that it's going to be, it's like a baby, right? 40 degrees outside, the plant should be okay, but you know it's going to be 40. It could go to 38. It could be a mild frost. Hey, we run out and grab our seedling trays and bring them in the house for the night, even though it's not going to freeze. Well, as we start to get closer and closer to putting them in the ground, and it's going to be 40 degrees, they stay the hell out there, right? You let them take on a little bit more of temperature swing and direct sunlight, as they get closer and closer to going into the ground. And if you take that process over even five to six days of slowly increasing that with them, when you put them in the ground, they'll do dynamite. Because all of a sudden, they go from this little pot for their roots that's been containing them, and they've got this huge, healthy root system now, and they've been nurtured, and they're strong, and they're ready. And You put them down in that soil, man, they start shooting those roots out. Another thing I want to talk to you about when you put them in the ground. You know how they say, just take the peat pot, plant it in the ground, and it'll rot away. I've pulled up seedlings or plants that are dead at the end of the season that grew fairly well, and still found the peat pot holding all the dirt around them and just a few roots sticking out. In my estimation, the smartest thing to do with peat pots, if you don't have them in, pl- and I like plastic pots better generally anyway because they just slip right out of there and they don't attach themselves. But is to cut one slot in them and basically unpeel them. Now, sometimes the roots have started to grow into them so much, as you go to do that, you realize the roots are attached to the peat. If that's the case, then what I like to do is I take my knife, and I use a razor knife for this again, I cut a slot into each of the four sides, and just cut right through it. And sometimes if the pot, you know, you want to let them dry out a bit. Okay, if you've been keeping them really moist, you won't be the day you're going to uh, plant them. Let them be completely dry for a few hours because it's easier to work with them when the soil's dried out a little bit and doesn't get as is uh, wet and and crumbly uh, for you. So you want them just a tiny bit damp when you do this. So cut through all four sides. Just cut, don't have to cut deep because then you're cutting into the roots. Just cut right through the wall of the peat pot and try to cut the bottom off and maybe pull it up out a little bit just as you set it so leave it all together it's just got cuts in it and as you put it into its hole pull on a little bit and give it a little bit of separation now the roots have an escape route additionally uh there's this this pathway for moisture to flow that's that's a lot less uh, uh permeable and it'll tend to break them down a lot faster if you do that and it gives the roots something of a start to push against so it's one of my little tricks that I've learned over the years. It's worked well for me. Now, when you do buy plants, like I went out and bought some basil, some boxwood basil, just some nice plants at Home Depot, and uh, they looked great. Well, it was a great big pot, four bucks, with four plants in it. Well, most people take that pot and plant it in the ground, or even if they take the pot off it was a peat pot, they put the whole plug in the ground. I took my razor knife and I cut straight through the center and straight through the center again, and I made four little boxwood basil plants out of the one, I planted them, all four are doing beautifully. So you can do that with big, strong plants that can handle the roots being cut if they've been planted right and if they're far enough apart. These were planted, I picked one where they were as far apart as they could be and all be in the same pot. And maybe you don't want to be that aggressive, maybe you just cut it in half. It's a risk, but hey, uh, four plants for the price of one is pretty nice. And each one of them will actually do better now because they can grow without competing with their neighbors, so to speak. Uh, So there's a lot that you can do if you just start thinking and understanding about what seeds need. But again, the hardening off process is really important. The next thing I want to talk to you about, we're getting near the end today, but it's called potting up. And the why and the how. I also did a video on this. Potting up is we take these plants that are, let's say we get one of those little nine cell plastic things, like you go out and buy plants and, you know, you get nine plants for two bucks or whatever. And they are all these little plants in this little plastic cell deal. And uh, you decide, hey, you know what? It's still too early in the year to put these plants in the ground. But they're getting pretty big for this little plant thing that they're in. So I want to let them continue to grow. I don't want to stunt their growth. So you need to get them into a larger pot. So you select a pot like, let's say, a four-inch plastic pot, which is what a lot of the other plants. You go out and buy plants that are a little bit more expensive for plant. They're in those four-by-fours, right? So you are got to take your nine-cell thing and move it to nine four-by-fours. The reason you're doing that is just to give more room for roots. That's really what it's all about. Because if you have greater root growth, you can have greater top growth. And you cannot have one without the other. Without more roots, you don't get more top. Plain and simple. You want to stun a plant, put it in a small container, and it'll never get very large because its root system will not allow for it. Eventually, it may die. If it's a plant that needs to get big, the roots may completely engulf everything. And instead of having dirt with roots, it will almost force the dirt out of the pot, and eventually they'll die. So so you need more root space. So that's the why. The how, pretty simple. Pop it out just like you're going into the ground. Uh, generally, you're going to fill your pot about halfway before you put your your plant in, drop your plant in, fill it up with dirt. Now, the why is more important than the how. It's pretty simple the how. The why is beyond more root space. The deeper why is because, let's say it's right now, it's like March 23rd today, 24th today, March 24th. And I'm going, I should be safe planting in the ground now. We just had our last big cold front come through, but I'm not ready yet. I'm going to wait till about... Uh, second week of April to start putting a lot of plants in the ground, especially plants that can be killed by frost. I just don't trust things yet. Uh, the weather's been weird the last couple of years, and I'm holding off. So I want to continue the growth. So the only way I can do that is to pot up my plants that should be going into the ground but aren't ready yet. That leaves me keep them in trays. That lets me bring them in when it gets cold. You see how that all works. So that's the reasoning behind potting up. It's not just so the plant can get bigger, but it's mainly because I'm not ready to put the plant into the ground yet. If I'm ready to put the plant into the ground, I'll just throw the plant into the ground. But sometimes we're not ready for that for a variety of reasons. Maybe it's a very tender type of plant that just really needs to be stronger before it goes into the ground. Maybe the season's not right. You get the idea. You have to make the call there, but there's the reasoning behind it. Um, and that's the big thing. I want you to hold back on playing into the ground until you're sure. Right? If you think there's going to be another freeze, your gut tells you that. The farmer's almanac tells you that. And if there was one last year, the weather's been weird, there may be. So one of the things you really can do to help yourself with this is to record for yourself whenever there's a freeze that damages plants and what the date was. Because sometimes the, the, the weather record will say there wasn't a freeze on, you know, April, April 3rd, uh, to 2010. But there was enough of a frost in your backyard that it killed some of your plants or damaged some of your plants. Or at least when you came out, the tops of the grass was white. Because there's a microclimate. So even though the air temperature was 38, well, what was the ground temperature in the part of your yard that doesn't get a lot of direct sunlight in that part of the year? I've got this side of my yard that it'll be overnight low, 39 degrees. And I come out in the morning, and if I get up before the sun comes up, there's frost on the grass there. So you need to start understanding where these things happen and when these things happen in your yard and what your dates are. The last thing I'm going to tell you is mulch is your friend. I don't care if you're planting seeds in the ground. I don't care if you're planting plants in the ground. I don't care what you're doing. Mulch, 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 mulch. I've had people say, well, how do I mulch if I'm going to put seeds in the ground? Don't have to wait for the seeds to come up and then mulch around the seedlings. It depends on what you're growing and what you're mulching with. For instance, um, I grew peas this year. They're doing well. They're about four inches high now, and they're a low-growing pea. I should have them in production another couple months. Uh, another month, I'd say. They can handle the frost. They're doing beautifully. I planted them underneath cypress mulch. I pulled the cypress mulch back. I put the peas with an inoculant, inoculant for the nitrogen fixation bacteria. I put them, just laid them down in two rows. I'm nitrifying this bed for planting later in the season. So I'm going to get peas and I'm going to get nitrogen into the soil because they're a legume. I didn't even dig the dirt. I laid the peas on top of the soil and I covered them with cypress. And I did this in January. And it was too cold for them to germinate. And I just left them there. About mid-February... I went out, and I looked, and they were starting to get a little few places where I could see a few green leaves coming up out of that mulch. They're actually protected by the mulch. I went and pulled back the mulch just a little bit to uncover the tops of the emerging plants. And then, once I got them emerged well, I pushed the mulch back in. So since they were peas and they're a strong plant that can push mulch out of the way, I went ahead and mulched on top of them. Uh, most beans will come right up through mulch. But even if you're worried about it, well, then mulch everything. And the spot you're going to put your seed, pull back the mulch just big enough to put the seed in and leave an opening for that seed. One of the things you can do um, is get something like vermiculite, which, of course, is part of Mel's mix. But this is also a trick I've learned from Mel. So I go and I create a hole for my seed. I put my seed in there. And instead of filling it with soil, I sprinkle vermiculite on top. It was very light, airy, and very uh, moisture-retentive. And then I know where my seeds are. And once they come up, I can kind of backfill with a little seed and push my mulch around them. But mulch, don't be afraid to mulch. I keep also getting this one. Jack, you said to just put cardboard down and mulch on top of it to kill grass and not to dig up the ground. Well, how do I plant seeds? Okay. Pull the mulch back and make a little hole where your seeds is going to go. Okay. Cut a hole in the cardboard. Take a stick or a, you know, a garden tool and kind of churn the soil up just a little bit through that hole into uh, the, the subsurface. Take your seed and put it right at the top of the, uh, the subsurface. Don't really even push it in there. If it needs to be covered, if it's like anything other than like a lettuce seed or something like that, take a little bit of compost and sprinkle a little bit of compost and leave that area exposed. As soon as the plant starts to grow, cover it back up. Now remember, when you mulch the cardboard, you should be putting down a layer of compost and then a layer of mulch on top of the cardboard. Eventually, now th- that's how to plant right away. If you do that, let's say in the fall, by the time you get to spring, the cardboard's mostly rotted away anyway. And the soil's already great, and all you have to do is pull the mulch back and, and plant there. But I'm going to do this for you under my peach tree this year on video. I'm going to show you how to put cardboard down and throw mulch on and show you that seeds really will grow if you don't mess with the earth. You've got to think about this again, folks. Everything everywhere grows without our help. And then when we try to help it, we ignore the rules that nature gives us. And the rules that nature gives us is that bare earth is bad. I want you to think about where do you see bare soil? In nature. Not in backyards, not in places where somebody's dug something up, not in somewhere where somebody's made a farm. And that's the problem. We see farms, and we see farms with all this bare dirt, and we think bare dirt must be the way to grow things. Farmers don't not use mulch because it's not good. They don't use it because it's very difficult for them to do. Because when you're farming 80 acres of corn, mulching it's not really an option. doesn't work with monoculture where we're driving these big tractors up and down and harvesting and stuff like that and spraying. But your little backyard garden, your little permaculture projects, mulching is easy. Well, in nature, there's only a few places where we ever see bare earth. One is a desert... The other is a man-made desert, which means we've screwed something up and turned once fertile land into a desert. The other is where erosion has eroded the topsoil and created what amounts to a micro-desert. The other is the ice caps of Antarctica. And the last one would be a dry lake bed that is salted. Like if we drained the Great Salt Lake in Utah, we wouldn't see a whole lot growing there. It would stay bare earth. These are the only places where soil is bare in nature. So when we're trying to grow stuff in bare soil, we're ignoring the laws of nature. Nature abhors a vacuum, and bare soil is a vacuum. And it takes life, and it drops it down on the soil and protects the soil. When you put mulch on a soil, it's like putting bandages on a wound so that the skin can start to regrow and heal itself without it being affected by the atmosphere, without it getting infection, Without it getting damaged, without it getting, you know, if you have a scrape on your arm and you don't put a bandage on it, even if it doesn't get infected, if you just bump it on a table as you walk by, you reopen the wound and it starts, to, it starts to be damaged again. But if you put a good bandage on it you bump it, nothing really happens. And even if it doesn't, if it starts to bleed a little bit, the bandage makes it clot quicker. And it helps the healing process along. That's mulch. Mulch is the earth's bandage. And it heals the things that have been damaged. And most of the soil that you'll ever plant in, in suburban America and even much of rural America, has been damaged. It's been damaged by man's activities. Now, this isn't any human, right? We have to live, too. But we also have to understand that there are parts of the soil that we want to take care of, and the way we do that is with mulch. So don't be afraid of mulch. Don't be able afraid to plant things under mulch. I'm going to tell you, last year I did an experiment. I grabbed a handful of green bean seeds and I threw them on grass at the bottom of my yard. I took two big handfuls of uh, cypress mulch, I mulched about an inch on top of there. By the time the grass was fighting its way through, um, the the thing, the green beans grew and I got beans off of them. This was out of the edge here of fence. I didn't dig, I didn't put cardboard down, I didn't put compost down. All I did was throw mulch on top of grass. Now, the thing was, the grass competed with the beans. They didn't do as well as they could if I had killed the grass, but they grew. I didn't even put them into the soil. I dropped them on the surface. No one goes out and plants seeds in a meadow, but yet they grow, because things accumulate on top of them, not because something plants them into the ground. Squirrels plant acorns and stuff like that, but in general, most seeds never get planted. They have to make do with where they land. So hopefully this will help you today. And maybe it will give you a new paradigm, a new look at when you're trying to start seeds. And maybe you'll have less frustrations. Now why do I take a whole day and do a show called the Survival Podcast about how to grow a seed into a plant? Because folks, the most important thing, and what we talked about yesterday, is the ability to feed ourselves. We talked about storing food yesterday, but we have to accept something about storing food. It's a finite solution. No matter how much money you have and how much space you have, sooner, you'll run, sooner or later you'll run out of both. And for most of us that aren't wealthy and don't live in giant mansions, we have severely limited money and space. So our food storage capability is limited both spatially and economically. Our ability to grow food is virtually unlimited. I promise you, if you think you've converted every spare inch of your property to producing food, You are either A, wrong and there's more room, B, so overwhelmed with food you can't possibly eat everything you're producing and still wrong, or C, it's an imaginary situation and it's never happened. Because I don't care what you do, I guarantee you, someone that's not inside of your little envelope can walk in there and go, Oh, yeah, you know what you could do? You could put a trellis up here on this shed, and you could plant some beans, and they'll do beautifully there. And you go, Well, that doesn't get a lot of sun, and they'll go, Well, that's, that's, that's right, that doesn't get a lot of sun, but it probably gets about, what, four hours of sun a day? Yeah, oh great, and it's kind of up overhead when it's doing that, so it's not directly down on bean on it. Yeah, yeah, plant scarlet emperor beans there because they don't like the heat in this area. But that little microclimate's great. And uh, let's see, that's a 10 foot shed. It's eight feet high on that wall. Oh, you could grow, you know, um, enough to put away, you know, several several pounds of dry beans out of there, or a, a ton of canned or dehydrated string beans if you want to pick them early. And, and then they'll just keep going, and they'll keep finding things. Because they haven't limited themselves the way that you have. They're coming to it fresh and anew. And if you make a gardening buddy, that's a great little thing, a little thing to end up with here. You know, you go over to his house and say, hey, why don't you add this here and that there and have him come to your house and do the same thing. Because you'll both see things the other will miss. That's why business consultants are so valuable. They're not wrapped up in, if they're a good one, right? They're not wrapped up in your business. So they analyze it unemotionally attached and they're able to give you real-time and accurate feedback. That's the same thing with gardening. So hopefully this helps you. Hopefully I've driven home once again how important it is to be able to feed yourself. But get out there. And I'll tell you you what, folks. Take your kids with you through this journey. Teach your kids about how we can take something tiny, a seed, and show them that there's life in it. And take that seed from a point of what looks like death, a dry little fuzzy thing that looks like it can't do anything. And a few months later, it's a thriving plant that produces over and over and over again. That's a great life lesson for your kids. And it's a great way to start living that better life. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, no helping you figure out how to live that better life. Sometimes you get or even if they don't. Makes you wonder where you You can scream and you can holler. It really doesn't matter, cause all gets spent.